Okay, so I'll just get started here. Um, just going to open with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll begin our second session. Father God, as we talk about uh, suffering and um, Scripture's response to suffering, I just want to pray that you bless the session. And um, Father, for those who have experienced a great deal of pain, um, I just want to pray that um, yeah, you would be able to walk with them through that and uh, provide uh, provide um, healing and, 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 and an answer. And so I just want to pray that you would guide us through this next session. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> So one of the greatest challenges to faith is the existence of suffering. There's, an, there's a famous 18th century skeptic by the name of David Hume, and he presents something called a trilemma. And here's how it goes. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both willing and able? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither willing nor able? Then why call him God? When you read the news articles and it's filled with natural disasters, acts of violence, acts of corruption, the existence of disease, it's so hard to reconcile the idea of suffering with the idea of a powerful God. Theologians make an attempt at responding to this trilemma, to this challenge, and what they call, uh, with what they call theodicy. And theodicy can be split up into two words, theo, which is God, and vike, which is justice. And basically, theodicy is an attempt at justifying God. It's an attempt to respond to the trilemma that is famously presented. Now, just for starters, I'm not going to be able to do this topic justice um, for many reasons, uh, one of them being time. But what I hope is that um, as we talk about this topic, as I'm able to just share a few perspectives, I hope that it'll inspire you to search and, uh, and to look for yourself and to continue to um, explore this topic as it's an important one. Um, and of course, if you want to continue or if you want to come up to me afterwards and have a chat, I'm happy to do that. I want to share some resources that are helpful to this topic. The first one is a series that was done by uh, this gentleman named Anthony McPherson. He did a six-part series on the problem of pain, and he called it The Problem of Pain is God to Blame. And what makes him unique is he's actually doing his doctorate on this topic. And so if you go to the Melbourne City Adventist Church YouTube channel and you search the problem of pain is God to blame, there are six sessions that are listed. Um, I've only posted five of them because the sixth one was me and I did a really bad job. And so look at the first five. They're really good. <laughs> and Anthony does a great job of kind of delving into uh, the framework of pain, and he kind of also approaches this from a practical standpoint, and he talks about how to work through pain, and I thought the series is quite good. There's also a book entitled um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering written by Tim Keller. Uh, for those of you who are interested, there are four copies in the back, and so if you would like, you um, we invite you to borrow them. You can check them out. There's a little a, uh, there's a little sign-up sheet. Just write down your name. You can check out the book, have a read-through, and, um, 
and, and return the book after you're done. And uh, Tim Keller has really good spiritual insight into processing pain, uh, processing pain. Both resources that I've shared provide a really good framework, and they go through different theories of how to process pain. And um, anyway, and they also approach this from a Christian, uh, Christian worldview. So the way that I'm going to approach this topic is similar. I'm going to present a few Christian approaches to suffering. Um, I'm going to show where I think that they lack in their approach and explanation. And then I will also give my own uh, view on um, how to process the existence of pain and suffering and how that fits in with the idea of God. So the first theory that I want to talk about is the punishment theory. And this basically states that the existence of suffering and pain is a result of our mistakes. So the practice of sin results in suffering, and whenever there is suffering, it's interpreted as the judgment of God. Uh, so basically it states, uh, we reap what we sow, and there aren't really any victims, if you will. Back in the day, uh, as there were different natural disasters that hit different parts of the world, um, the Christian community responded to these natural disasters. One famous one was Hurricane Katrina, which really decimated New Orleans. And I remember going online and reading different Christians saying, you know, this natural disaster happened because New Orleans is such a sinful city. Or if there's a disease that comes upon someone, there's a question of how that person lived their lives. You have cancer? Well, you must have done something. Now, while personal responsibility is important, the challenge with this approach is that there are no victims. It's always your fault. Now, going back to that story in John chapter, uh, John chapter 9, I skipped over the first four verses, but now I'd actually like to explore this verse. As we know the premise of this story, there's a question that's asked, who is to blame for this man's blindness? Is it him or his parents? And back then there was this theological debate as to whether or not babies can actually be sinful in utero. And so there's this question of if a baby is born unnatural, that baby must have done something or the parents must have done something. And so the disciples actually ask Jesus this question. I love how Jesus responds. He says something profound. He says, when you are facing suffering, it's not about finding fault. It's about doing God's work. And notice here at the end of verse 4, it says, It's not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The power of God or the work of God is through the people of God then trying to alleviate suffering where they see it. And so Jesus' response to the disciples are, it's not about fault finding, it's about going and helping that, uh, the person who is suffering. And so the rest of the story, as we already looked at, Jesus then heals this blind man. He shows the work of God by doing this great act. When we face suffering, the solution to the problem is not found in investigating the source of the problem. I love that about the story. There are moments when suffering happens and there simply is no explanation. It's nobody's fault. There's another theory. It's called the greater good theory. 
this theory states all evil happens because there's a greater good. So to add another challenging idea or another challenging layer to that idea, God only allows challenges to happen because there is a greater good. And therefore, when you suffer, take it gracefully. And if you struggle with the challenge, then it means you're not faithful. There's this passage that I hear quoted many times, Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We use this verse to mean that everything has a purpose. Our pain has a purpose. It makes us stronger. And here's the challenge. You can be pinned up against the wall with the pressure to then perform in the face of adversity because something good is supposed to come out of it. But if you read the context, we're going to look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So when you struggle with God's plan, be assured of his love. The promise of something working towards something good is not a mandate that doesn't allow you to struggle. It's there to give assurance, not force fake faithfulness. So sometimes the idea that certain trials lead to happy, immediate endings is true. I had a friend who uh, had blurry vision. Um, he was seeing kind of like white clouds in his, in his eyes. Or he was seeing white clouds. And before he kind of just kind of brushed it off and said, oh, no big deal. And then he started getting these migraines. And so pretty soon his family is like, you should go see the doctor. And he's thinking, oh, there's this, I don't feel good, but okay, fine, I'll go. So after an MRI, they found a tennis ball-sized uh, tumor in his brain. And basically the tumor was covering the, um, the uh, area in which it communicates with your eyesight. And because it was covering that part of the brain, it was causing this haziness or this white cloud in his vision. And so thank God for the headaches, right? Like that immediate pain led to uh, the avoidance of something that could potentially be terminal. But then there are other examples in the Bible. One is John the Baptist. And for those of you who have good memory or are jotting down notes, there are some passages here, Matthew 11, 2, uh, uh, Matthew 11, 2 to 12, or Matthew 14, 3 to 14. It covers the story of John the Baptist. For those of you who may not be as familiar with this story, John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. And so John the Baptist immediately would feel this sense of importance through family relationship. John spends a lot of time preaching about the importance of justice and fairness. He calls out the wrongs of the authorities. And as a result, John the Baptist gets thrown in prison. And while in prison, John sends his disciples to Jesus. And he asks them to ask Jesus, are you who I think you are? Are you the Messiah? And really what he's asking is, hey, if you're really going to be king, why are you leaving me in prison? I'm your cousin. Like, come free me. Perform a miracle. Do something. Alleviate my suffering because I'm in prison for doing the right thing. If you read the story, Jesus does very little when it comes to action. Here's Jesus' response. Matthew 11, verses 11 to 12. 
Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. No rescue, no visit. And there's almost like Jesus gives this obituary before John the Baptist has even died. He just says, John the Baptist is a great guy. It's like, are you going to do anything? And basically, nothing happens. Jesus simply says, there are times where there is great evil in the world, and there's no immediate happy ending. There are other stories where there are three-year-old girls who are taken advantage of and left for dead. And if you follow this theory to its end, everything should have a purpose. But the problem is there are times where suffering does not have purpose. And the moment you try adding purpose to it, it makes it worse. Uh, When I was 15, my mother passed away from a stroke. And I remember as years passed by, and I started doing uh, missionary work and became a Bible worker and went into ministry. One of the church members sat me down, and this is what they said. Roy, it's amazing what God has done in your life. I can't help but think if your mother were still alive today that you wouldn't be in ministry. And what she was trying to do was reconcile the fact that my mother had passed away. And I was trying to be gracious, and I just kind of smiled and nodded. And I kind of thought, I'd like to think that I'd still be a pastor if my mom were alive. <laughs> like, you know, a- anyway, like to give that purpose to the pain makes it worse. And so there's just some times where we cannot explain suffering. So that leads us to a third option, which is anti-theodicy. And anti-theodicy simply says, there is no purpose. You just deal with it, roll with the punches. Don't try and understand or uh, don't try to understand suffering, just accept it. But the problem with this theory is that every time something bad happens, we cannot help but ask that question, why is this happening? Why is there suffering? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk writes, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. For both theists and atheists, the question arises, why is there suffering? How do we process it? How do we overcome evil and injustice in the world? So here's what I believe to be a helpful perspective on suffering from the Bible. It's called the free will defense and mixed in with this idea of a cosmic war theory. The Bible portrays this cosmic war that exists between God and Satan, between good and evil. Now, I realize the idea of a devil is probably not very popular in a secular environment. And um, I want to hasten to say, I'm not really talking about this red creature with horns and a pitchfork. Um, The Bible shows this creature as a sophisticated opponent of God who obscures his nature, his works are deceptive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 
the sheer amount of evil in the world seems to point to a perpetrator of that evil. If you think about World War II and all the atrocities that happened in World War II, you can trace that back to influential leaders who practice oppression and violence. Uh, people like Hitler, Mussolini, the people that backed Hitler and Mussolini. You can pinpoint people who caused that oppression and that evil. And so as you look in the world and you see all the bad things that are happening, it is a logical conclusion to say there must be someone behind that evil. The Gospels are the books with the most evidence for historical accuracy. And it's in these same books that more is written about the devil than in any other books of the Bible. Jesus himself spoke many times of Satan. And from a biblical worldview, there's no question about the existence of the devil. If you believe Jesus existing is a plausibility, then you can't really separate that from what he says about or what he believes about the devil. The devil then is also a plausibility or the existence of the devil is plausible. So from a, a secular perspective, I'm suggesting that we cannot split the historicity of characters and what they actually believed. So let's talk about the origins of Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 13 to 17, and you can just look at that on your own time. I'm just going to briefly narrate here. Ezekiel 28, 13 to 17 talks about this created angelic being who's full of wisdom and beauty. And what ends up happening is this creature is corrupted by his own greatness, by his own wisdom, as it were. And his arrogance and pride leads him to become an adversary of his creator, God. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, the author writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. The language is cosmic, and that name, Morning Star, is translated Lucifer. So it describes Lucifer having this desire to ascend into heaven and set up his own throne. And the question is, what does it mean when Lucifer sets up his throne to be like God's throne? And in, those, in the days of antiquity, a throne uh, represented power, it represented policy, it, re it represented who the king was. And so Lucifer sets up his throne. He's setting up his own rules, his own laws, his own policies. And what's pictured here is a battle of politics. Satan chooses to attack God's character, his justice, his law. Revelation describes a similar battle. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The Greek word for war is polemos. And basically, the fight in heaven that's described in Revelation, it's a polemic in nature. They're having a good old-fashioned political debate. And I don't know if you've watched the political deba uh, debates on the, on the television where one politician says, so-and-so supported um, 
uh, policy XYZ, and this is what happened, and they attack each other's character through the policies that they've implemented and supported. The Bible says that this debate, this battle takes place, Satan loses and is cast to earth, and his fellow angels are cast down with him. Now, if the battle in heaven is surrounded by, or if the battle in heaven revolves around God's character, his justice, and his law, what do you think happens when the adversary is cast down to earth? If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the very first command that God gives Adam, he says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, and then he says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. And what's interesting is the wording. The author of Genesis specifically and intentionally writes, God commanded Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from this specific tree. So what do you think the serpent or the devil does as soon as he lands on planet Earth? He goes and he tells Adam and Eve, you don't have to follow that command. You can eat it. You'll be fine. Throughout the whole Bible, this battle continues on. If you go to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. There is this cosmic battle that's being waged over the character, the justice, and the law of God. And the reason why there's so much pain and suffering is because we are on a battlefield. The Bible shows that the force that opposes God is not only interested in challenging God, but it's self-destructive in nature and wages war even with itself. So here's the question. Why does God allow the devil to exist? Why allow destruction? Just stop the pain. Destroy the devil. Don't allow Adam and Eve to be tempted. The Bible gives this very challenging truth about God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says that God is love. The foundational principle of love is that it's built on the freedom of choice. The thing that makes love special, the thing that makes love powerful, is that you have the freedom to give love to whomever you choose. You have freedom. When I asked Jinha to be my girlfriend, there were so many strong emotions that I was feeling. Um, <clears throat> I wondered, is she going to reject me? There are lots of other eligible guys. What's going to happen if, when I ask her to be my girlfriend? So when I asked her out, I had the whole date planned. Lunch at a nice restaurant next to the beach, followed by a walk along the beach. And then I also had a guitar hidden in the boot of my car. And so what I was going to do is I was going to smoothly recline the back seat, reach out to my guitar, and bust out the instrument and serenade her. <clears throat> Pretty romantic, right? Like, not too bad. Well, when I sang their song, I forgot the lyrics because I was so nervous. <laughs> and at the end of the song, when I asked her, will you be my girlfriend, she looked at me and she said, yes, I'll be your girlfriend. I didn't feel like I was the luckiest guy in the world. I was the luckiest guy in the world. Now, I felt that way because she's allowed to say no. The moment you take away that freedom and you force love, it's not special anymore. What would have happened if I reached into the boot and pulled out a gun instead of a guitar? And I was like, you will be my girlfriend. It's not going to be a special moment at all. You cannot force love 
you cannot program love. And that's what makes love so special. So here is God faced with this challenge that his own creation does not submit to his love, does not respond to his love. And what is he going to do? He has to allow his creation to rebel. Otherwise, he is not consistent with his own nature. God's creation, as we are witness of right now, chooses rebellion. And the Bible says that it opens the door to sin, to death, to suffering. So whenever we witness oppression, corruption, and destruction, it's a reminder that sin is present and an enemy exists. The good news is that God has a solution for this problem. There's a metaphor or there's a parable that Jesus covers in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. I'm just going to grab some water while you're turning there. For those of you who have your white Bibles, it's page 782. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, page 782 in the White Bibles. Actually, I lied. It's 783. So it's entitled, The Parable of Wheat and Weeds. Another parable, or here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as a worker slept, his enemies came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer explained. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them in bundles, and burn them, and put the wheat in the barns. Now, if you want to look at the explanation or the interpretation of that parable, you can jump ahead to verses 36 to 43. But I'm just going to um, explain the interpretation. In this parable, Jesus is asked, should we stop the evil from happening? And Jesus gives this peculiar answer, no, don't stop the evil. Don't put an end to the wrong. He says, you need to wait till the evil matures to be able to properly judge and discern right from wrong. Prematurely getting rid of that which is evil does not protect the good. And that's kind of a strange take on suffering because you would think, well, if you remove suffering, then you remove pain. But the problem is you can remove suffering and pain and not remove wrongdoing. God wants us to discern evil and avoid it, to see righteousness and cling to it. And what I like about this parable is that it promises a solution. You know, there are different theories of the existence of evil, and sometimes you can kind of lose hope and think that evil is always going to exist. It's kind of like this balancing act of that which is good. You know, if you think of movies like Star Wars, you need light and darkness. The darkness never goes away. But the difference in the Christian narrative is that evil is done away with. You don't have to have evil because you have good. And so there is a solution to pain. 
In Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. I love that one day. The good news that's given in the Bible is that evil will be destroyed. So what is God doing in the meantime? How do I process suffering in my own life? There's a story in the Old Testament that sheds light on the waiting period. In November, in November, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, there's this very peculiar story. And let's read through that together. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. And if you go to chapter 21, it's page 132. Page 132, this is Numbers chapter 21, and I'm going to read verses 4 to 9. It says, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of the bronze and attached it to the pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. This is a very strange story. The Israelites complain. God says, oh yeah, take this, send snakes. And then the snakes go and kind of clean up house. And the people finally come to this sense. Sorry, God, we made a mistake. This, this story, I find, really challenges the, the, the character and the goodness of, and fairness of God. <clears throat> but let me, let's look at this story a little bit closely, uh, a little bit closer. Verses four, five, 4 and 5, the people experience hardship. And basically, they turn to God and they say, God, it would have been better if you just leave us alone. And another way, uh, uh, another way of saying this is basically saying, God, go away. Now, if you look at verse 6, it says, as a result, God sent serpents. Now, the translation of the verb sent is inaccurate because in the Hebrew, the root verb word is sent. But similar to the Spanish language, in Hebrew, verbs are conjugated, sort of. And so the actual translation of this word is an intensive word for sent. And the intensive translation of the word sent is actually freed. When you send some away intensely, you are freeing a slave. And that's the actual verb that is used in this verse. In other words, as Israel is going through the wilderness, God is protecting the people from these serpents that are all around. And as Israel then complains and says, God, it would have been better if you just left us in Egypt, go away. God says, all right, well, you don't want me around. 
I'm not going to force myself on you. And he lifts his presence and he walks away. And the result is that these serpents are then freed to enter into the camp of Israel. And that's actually what's taking place. The story parallels real life. When we face suffering or difficulty, it's actually easy to blame and then reject God. Ah, my life is so difficult. God, why are you allowing this to happen? I wish I didn't even know you. But here's the one challenge. Even if we reject God, it doesn't actually take away the problem of suffering. It still exists. And notice, when the people do come around and cry out for help, the solution that they ask for is different from the solution that God actually gives them. The people want the snakes to go away. And this makes a lot of sense to me. But if you think about it, if God takes away the snakes, what's going to happen to the people? They're still going to die because they're infected with venom. And the venom is the problem. The venom is what's killing them. So God's solution is very peculiar. He instructs Moses to make another snake out of bronze and to have the people look at the snake. Now, I find that solution is a very, very unique, unique solution. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus refers to this story as he's talking to Nicodemus. And I believe that Jesus' reference to this story unlocks the meaning of this mystery. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus here associates himself with the very thing that is killing the people. And the question is, why does he identify himself as a snake? Jesus takes on the identity of the snake because even though he didn't cause the suffering, he takes responsibility for what the snakes do. See, the story, instead of highlighting God's punishment, is highlighting God's suffering. Jesus' solution to evil is sacrificial love. The sacrifice of Jesus gives us the promise of life. And in the face of evil, we are also to follow that example in, in combating evil, to give sacrificial love. I remember growing up, it was such a difficult thing to process uh, the death of my mother. And immediately, there was so much support from the church that I really found a lot of comfort and peace in connecting with people in church because they were there through uh, through my family's difficulty. But what I found was that as I aged from 15 to 19, I started asking that question, okay, I've been going to church and God is powerful. Why didn't he just heal my mother? And I really wrestled with that idea of God's fairness and his goodness. Every Mother's Day, something is missing. Every birthday, something is missing. Every special event, something is missing. And there's kind of this sense of injustice. And, you know, it probably wasn't until I was like 24 that I finally looked back in retrospect of my life and realized, yes, it was unfair that this suffering took place. But at the same time, I can so clearly see moments where God worked in my life. So yes, 
there is suffering, and at the same time, it didn't then nullify God's working. And I think at the age of 24, I kind of finally came to grips with that idea that, you know what? God is good. And when there is suffering, the way that God reaches out and deals with suffering is through his people to then go and do their best to alleviate suffering. You know, that story in John chapter 9, it really, Jesus connects what God does with what we do as representatives of God. We are to go and do the work of God in the face of suffering. And as you experience suffering in your life, may you experience the peace of God as well. May God bless you.